we desire the giver of the gift more than the gift itself. Somehow I feel like we have that inverted, that we feel like the gift is greater than the giver. Now don't shout me down when I'm preaching good here, amen? Now you know I'm telling you the truth. Because people want to elevate that to a level of preeminence. So what is the Bible saying about authentic salvation? Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner, what manner, heavy emphasis on this, of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from serving idols to serve the living and true God. So for they themselves report up to us what kind of reception that we have to you. You've turned from serving idols to serving the living God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Authentic salvation. One translation puts it this way. The news of your faith in God is out. The word is out. The news of your salvation is on the street. And we don't even have to say any more. Think about that. The news of your salvation is out and we don't have to say anymore because your life is doing the talking. And here's what he says. People come up and tell us how you received us with open arms. How you deserted your dead idols from your old life so that you could embrace and serve God, the true God. They marvel at how expectantly you wait for the arrival of his son, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from our most certain doom. Doomsday preacher, amen? So as you look at this, what does authentic mean? Authentic means something that is not false, of course. Something that is not copied, but it's very genuine. It's real. I love this other definition for it. It's having an origin supported by unquestionable evidence. It's been authenticated and it has been verified. Don't you love to watch those antique road shows or, or pawn shop things and they bring this stuff in and I mean, some people find this greatest treasure from past presidents or things of the past, and then all of a sudden, somebody thinks they've got it all, and then they come in, and they're like, no, nope, this isn't the original. And they're like, oh, man. You see, you just can't go by what, you, what, you, what is on the surface. You've got to go by what you know. So what we understand, and keeping with our theme, what is the Bible saying about authentic salvation? It lays it out here clearly in verse 9. It says the news is out. The word is on the street that your life is changed. I'm telling you that if you are a believer in Christ, 
If you come to know Christ and your friends can't tell any difference, now that doesn't mean you show up with the family Bible down at the job site and start beating them over the head with it, but if they can't see any difference in your lifestyle, then it's a good chance that you may need to question the authenticity of your salvation. Are you with me today, church? If you, picking up a coworker or picking up a carpool buddy, turn off your gospel music when they get in so that you don't offend them or so they don't find you out, then you may ought to question the authenticity of your relationship. If you, when somebody's life is at the end of the rope and they feel like there's no hope for them and they have nowhere else to turn, if you cannot stand up and bear witness and point them in the right direction of Jesus Christ because of the way your lifestyle is portrayed to them at the job site, then it's a good chance you may need to question the authenticity of your relationship. Let me explain it this way. Back in the 90s, there was this really cool thing late 80s early 90s it was called the glamour photo you would see this girl and you'd become enamorated by her beauty and you'd think man she's the prettiest thing around and then they had these things called the glamour photos boy is that 80s or 90s or what and they come in and they looking at this picture and they got these big feather dresses on and these things around them and they fix their hair real big because that's the way we did it back in the day. And they put on all this makeup and all of a sudden the girl's thinking, oh my goodness, look at this wonderful picture. And the guy's looking at it thinking, what happened to the most beautiful girl I've ever seen? Who is this person? Who is this person? And I'm afraid our spiritual journey is a lot like glamour photos. I'm afraid that we put these glamour photos on and we put on the Sunday go meeting clothes and we put on the, the happy church face and we put on the robe of religion. But I am telling you, the robe of religion will not get you through hell by the square inch. The robe of religion will not help you to live right in an ungodly world. The robe of religion will not give you victory in a world that is hell bent on running away from God, the robe of religion, the glamour photo of your Christian lifestyle will not give you victory when your children are driving you crazy, when they're hung up on drugs, it will not give you victory. When your children come in or your grandchildren or your co-worker comes in and deals with issues like we've been preaching about over the last six weeks, over issue of polygamy or multiple relations or over the issue of homosexuality or struggling with their sexual identity, the robe of religion will not give you victory. You better better be anchored in the rock of Jesus Christ. You better know whom you believe in and know that he is able to keep what you've committed unto him until the day that you see him or you will not have any victory. Let's get rid of the grammar flotos. Let's just get down to where the rubber meets the road and let's put down some roots for Jesus Christ. Let's let our lifestyle portray his grace, his goodness, and his mercy. May we not have to preach a sermon because they may the greatest sermon we ever preach be modeled in our lifestyle. May our co-workers know that we're authentic, not because we tell them we're authentic, not because you have a bumper sticker that says real men love Jesus, not because you have a honk if you love Jesus, not because you have a meet me in church on Sunday bumper sticker, but that they may know that you're born again and you have an authentic relationship because your life portrays it in your actions. 
and not your words. Not your words. Paul says this, I know that you're born again because the news is out on the street. Your friends are talking about it. You see, the problem is that's the one thing we don't want. We don't want people to start talking about we, us being a religious nut. I'll tell you something. I remember one day in my first church, they wanted me to go out into the cemetery for an early morning service. And uh, uh, I went out there, and I'm out. it was a Memorial Day service. It was very early in the morning. We go out there, and we're in the middle of this sermon. People's out there in the cemetery, and they're barbecuing, and this one thing or another. And I remember the text. I, I was really struggling with this going out there anyway. And so I thought, man, this just seems a little foolish to go out there in the middle of you know, the cemetery and preach. But nevertheless, is what the custom was, and so we was keeping the custom. And so I went out of there, and I preached on this passage of Scripture. Who's calling me a fool? As the Bible says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. How do we know that we have an authentic relationship and not a religious experiment? How do we know we have deep roots for Jesus Christ, that we are born again and not just a religious experiment because we have turned? I'll tell you something. You, when you have a head-on collision with the holiness of God and you see Jesus for who he is and you for who you really are, I'll tell you that's a day you won't soon forget, my brothers and sisters in Christ. When you see Jesus with all of his glory, when you see him who knew no sin to become sin, when you see his radiance, his splendor, and his mercy, and his preeminence, and in him all things exist, and for him, and by his good pleasure, and when you see him for who he is, and us for who we really are, I'm telling you, that's a head-on collision with a thrice holy God, and it will change your life. You'll walk away from that experiment changed. That experience changed. You see, it says they turned from serving these idols. That's what the Bible is saying. If you want to be born again, if you want to know that you're a believer, you can look back on your life and you can remember the day at a bonfire on a Friday night when I went to church because it was a youth night and all the good-looking girls were there, not in their glamour photo, and I was going there to pick up chicks. Amen. That's right. I was a teenager. I had women on my mind. But when I went there with women on my mind, God had me on his mind. And all of a sudden, gathered around a bonfire on a Friday night, this little teenage boy had a head on collision with God and I'll tell you I went in a, a, a man looking for one thing but I came out not looking for anything because I had found the one who had created me who had ordained me who had sustained me who had given me the victory through Jesus Christ authentic there was a turning if there has never been a turning then you may really need to question the authenticity of your relationship why am i saying these things because there's people who are living all these sermons that we've just been through that are very difficult there are people in every one of those categories who say i can do this and be born again i can do this and be a christian well may i tell you that you can you ought to not have the authority to call yourself a christian till somebody else does because that's how it happened in the new testament the name christian came up 
Because they were mocking them saying, these disciples act like Jesus. Do you not remember what the Bible says in Acts 4 when they arrested them and brought them in? It says they perceived that they were unlearned men, but they knew they had been with Jesus. I'm telling you that when you go to work, when you're in the grocery store, when you're at the ballpark and somebody calls the wrong play against your kids, does the umpire know you've been with Jesus? I'll move on. It's what the Bible is saying to us, that there must be a turning. The second thing is, what is the Bible saying to me? The first thing, real salvation is separation. Real salvation is separation from the past. You've got to put some space between who you are and who you were. You can't hold on to both of them because no man can serve two masters. The real salvation. What is the Bible saying? Real salvation is separation from the past. What is the Bible saying to me? That real salvation is consecration for the present. Consecration. This is a heavy word. Matter of fact, I looked up the definition of it because I'm a simple-minded man. And here's what it says. The act of consecrating. Boy, that's profound, isn't it? The act of consecrating dedication to the service and worship of a deity now your dead gods can be a deity in your own mind and we got a lot of folks that are consecrated to dead gods so you go back to the beginning of this and he says the first thing you must do is lay aside your demigods your dead gods, your trinket gods, put some space between you and them and then consecrate to the one living true God. To the one living true God who is the author and finisher of your faith. You see, my friends, let me give you the definition a little bit further. It says it's the act of giving a sacramental character to the Eucharist elements of the bread and wine, especially in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I want to share this definition because if you've ever been into a Catholic church, especially a Roman Catholic church, there is much work given to the Eucharist, to the keeping of the sacraments. They go through a great ordeal. Matter of fact, I've seen it many times growing up in South Louisiana. And I am telling you, I mean, as a, as a uh, boy who was raised in an evangelical circle, I'm just like, man, can we get on with it? But it's, they, they con it's the consecration. They consecrate that sacrament. And they go through the consecrating of the vessel before, during, and after. And you've got to sit there and watch the whole thing. I'm not making light of it. I'm, making, uh, I'm highlighting it to say they go through great effort of consecrating the vessel to be used for God. But the Bible says a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost of God? Therefore, it's much better than any vessel made with hands because if you didn't know it, this vessel is not made by earthen hands. And I'm telling you, this vessel has been knitted together in my mother's womb for His glory that one day, the very treasure of God, the Holy Spirit, may take up residence in my life. I'm telling you today that if you've got an authentic, authentic relationship, if there's some authenticity to your relationship, if it is authentic, I want you to understand that there must be an outward manifestation of the Spirit of God. 
Look at what it says right here very clearly. I'm not making this stuff up. He says, what manner of entry you had among us, how you turned from the idols to serve. Circle that word, serve the living God. That's the consecration that you're serving, that you're serving, that you're serving, that you're serving. One of the reasons that we're in the condition that we're in is because today, today, we don't have a lot of folks serving God. We've got a lot of folks serving the world and participating in church. Participating in Christian events such as Sunday morning worship will not change the world. Checking the box for your Bible study will not change the world. Checking your box through going through the habits of Christianism or, or the Christian ritualism, I'm telling you, it will not change the world. What will change the world is when the Holy Ghost of God gets inside of you and you realize who He is and who you are and that He made you like Him and in Him, you, in, in you, He now exists and now takes up residence and then your life will begin to be consecrated unto God that you would be set apart for God look at what it says that I am serving God I am serving God I'm afraid today that one of the greatest tragedies of our modern times is that we are serving ourselves. we are serving ourselves in the world we are serving ourselves in the job we are serving ourselves we are serving ourselves we are serving ourselves one of the common phrases in ministry is well pastor I'm moving I have another opportunity, another opportunity. And they never think twice about what God's trying to do in their life spiritually. It's only what is he doing physically. And we look and we think the greatest thing for our family is to take the promotion to move away from the place where God has positioned us. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't move people. I'm not saying God doesn't bless people and God didn't give promotions. I'm just saying that why is the church of God always the first thing to be given up? Why is the first thing that we always pray about is, is it more financially beneficial for me to take this job and to move away and to give up the position and to give up the calling and to give up the vision that God had placed in my life, in a ministry, in a city? Why is that always the last thing to be considered? I'm just asking a question. Don't get mad at me. The last thing. He says that you would serve us and to wait for his son. If you're waiting, you're consecrated. If you're truly waiting, I'm telling you, if you truly believed at 12 o'clock tonight, Jesus was coming back, we would live differently today than we did yesterday. I'm not even talking about going to do bad things. I'm talking about you would live differently. You would live differently. If you knew Jesus was coming back, do you think you would not be talking to your friends? If you knew Jesus was coming back at 12 o'clock tonight, do you not think you'd be telling the greatest love story in all the world? I've got to hurry up with this. The Bible illustrates this in Exodus 21. It's the story of the bondservant. I don't have time to read it, but you can go there in Exodus 21, 1 through 6. It talks about when a man became a servant. <clears throat> when he was purchased for a debt, he would come and he would serve that man for six years. And at the end of that time of serving him, that many things would happen. Matter of fact, the, the person went into that servant 
as a, as a slave or, or as, is indebtedness because he couldn't provide for his family. And in the biblical times, many of them would get there and they'd begin to work for this, this uh, man that had, had helped them out or had purchased their debt. And they'd begin to work for, through this process and they would find a whole new life there and they would love it so much that they would become what we call an indentured servant. They would want to be a bond servant, a bond servant. And you know, Paul talked about this. He says, I am a bond servant. I am a servant by choice. And the Bible says that when that happened, they would come to the man because at the end of six years, whether his debt was paid off or not, he was free to go. And what would happen is, after many of them were free to go, they would come back and they would come to the person who had purchased their debt and they would say something like this, you've been so kind to me. You took care of my family. You took care of my children. You provided a way for me, and I've really never had it so good. Can I please stay and work here for you? And if that was the case, what they would do in the book of Exodus 21, they gave him a, a, a pattern for this. He would say, take them to the doorpost and mark their ear. Put an owl in it. Mark their ear. Pierce their ear. And they would put a ring in that ear. Because that ring would then mean that they were a bond servant. They were a servant by choice. And it meant that they were not forced to stay. It meant that they had done their time. It meant their debt was paid. They were free to go, but they were bent on staying. And so that guy would begin to walk through those fields. He'd begin to walk through the corridors of that home. He'd begin to walk through that city and he'd have a, a ring in his ear. And that ring in his ear was an outward representation of the consecration to the person who had took care of him. You know where I'm headed with this, so pick up your feet that I don't hit them because I'm aiming for your heart. I'm telling you what God is looking for is an outward consecration that the mark of the cross be upon our life and that the world are not have to ask are we a believer they ought to know it by the fruit that we bear that's what his bible is saying to us now what does he want us to do about it very clearly the bible says that he wants us to live with expectation for the future look at what it says right here i'm not making this up and to wait for the son of god son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It means if one died for all, then all, that if one died for all, that all may live, then all who live should live for the one who died for all. I'm not making that up. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, 14, 15, 16. If one died for all, that all may live, then all who live should live for the one who died for all. Now then, if that's the case, you are a new creation. You know that scripture, don't you? All things have passed away and all things have become new. But we miss the concept of lordship. We like to get rid of our baggage. We like to get rid of our past. We like the being made new, but we don't like the lordship. Oh, it's in a popular message today. Authentic salvation is deemed authentic based upon the characteristic, not of the speech, but of the life that they may live. When we think about this, the verse 10 says that we wait for his son. I'm telling you, if you knew he was coming back, you would be waiting differently, if you believe that.
We were praying this morning. Pastor Ralph he asked us to pray for a guy that worked with him. 20-something years old, they found him dead in the bed. You just never know when Jesus is coming back. As my pastor, when I was a child, said, he comes back for somebody every day. The Greek word here has the idea of waiting. Waiting upon means to wait patiently. Boy, isn't that hard? To wait patiently. One translation says it this way. Your whole life now looks forward to the coming of the Son of Jesus Christ. I remember one time when I was in uh, uh, high school, I got suspended. <clears throat> and, uh, boy, I love my dad. But I'm telling you, that day I did not love his appearing. Because I knew when he got home, there'd be serious business to be had. See, it wasn't a question of if I loved the Father. But at that moment, I didn't love his appearing. Would you love the appearing of Jesus Christ right now? Would you love if he came back right now? Would you love it? Would you love his appearing? I'm not asking if you, would, if you love him. I'm saying, do you love his appearing? It means, are you ready? Are you ready to be made right? I can summarize it this way as an illustration found in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Here's what it says. Now on the next day they had come out from Bethany and Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar off a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, May no one ever eat of its fruit. And then skip down to verse 19. And when evening had come, he went out to the city, out of the city. And now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree was dried up from the roots upward. And Peter, remembering this, said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. One man asked the question, he said, why in the world would Jesus curse his fig tree? Well, number one, he was hungry. Number two, he saw that the fig tree had leaves. If a fig tree has leaves, then it should have fruit. Because with a fig tree, the fruit comes before the leaves. The buds, when that tree coming out of the winter is barren and it has no leaves... The bud of the fig is already there before the leaves ever come. It's not like a pecan tree or, or a satsuma tree where vegetation comes all over the place and then comes the fruit. So when Jesus saw the fig tree, he knew it was not the season. But he was hungry and he said, well, that fig tree must have fruit because it has leaves. And when he got there, there were no leaves. So the outward manifestation of the fig tree says, I am full of fruit. But when he got there, there was nothing. It was empty. You see, a fig tree that's producing fruit says, I have figs before I ever have my leaves. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? And it wasn't even the season. That is 
start stumble at a lot of people. Why would he curse a fig tree if it wasn't even the season to have figs? Like, isn't that just being mean? The reason that he did it was because, not because it wasn't the season. The reason he did it was because even when it wasn't the season, the fig tree had a name that it was living, but it was really dead. Wow. Wow. And we wonder what's wrong with the church. We got our leaves. We don't have any fruit. 